0: good to see all of you guys this morning. I guess you'll have to wait till the end of this to let me know if you're glad you're here as well, because we're going to talk about two potentially uncomfortable things this morning. I'm going to talk about money, and I'm going to talk about a story that Jesus told that most people like to pretend is not in the Bible. So let me tell you why I'm going to do that. First of all, with money, you might feel uncomfortable about that topic being addressed here, because A, You've never really heard money discussed well in a church before, or by Christians, or B, you don't feel like money is a spiritual topic, or C, maybe you don't want to be challenged in this area of life, or D, all of the above. So, and I acknowledge that churches and Christians have not always talked about this well, but that certainly means that we should, that certainly doesn't mean that we should avoid it, right? So, money is a central reality in our lives. And so if anything, I think maybe we should talk about it more, like Jesus did. And in general, I have the same perspective toward money that C.S. Lewis did toward the demonic realm, which is you can pay it no attention, which is bad, and you can pay it too much attention, which is bad. So we want to head somewhere in the middle. One of the reasons I think it's good to talk about money is that the financial part of life is spiritual. Because all of life is spiritual, and God is making all things new, which includes the way that we spend our money and the way that we make our money, the way that we save our money, our attitudes toward money, our dreams about money. God's mission is to make this area of life, like all of our life, new. And that's a beautiful thing, and that's a challenging thing. And we see that in Jesus' parable of the shrewd manager. This parable is found in Luke's biography of Jesus and it comes right after the parable of the prodigal son, which is probably the most well-known parable that Jesus told and often people's favorite. It's kind of ironic given that this is often the parable that people dislike the most and want to ignore because it's difficult. So why in the world would I choose to speak on this parable? There's a couple reasons. First, the theme of the parable is money or wealth and so it connects to our theme for the day. And second... I love teaching on unpopular parts of the Bible. Here's why. I find that if you can get past a seemingly unpalatable surface, and you get underneath, you find that there's untapped meaning, an untapped resource there that's often ignored. I think that's the case with this parable as well. Third reason is that it's it's a part of the Bible, and I believe that the Bible is God's inspired word to us, and that all of it, every single part of it, is useful for our lives, useful for teaching us and edifying us and giving us wisdom. But even if you don't believe that about the Bible, if you think it's a normal book, even if you think that Jesus is is just a historical figure and, and no more than that, there's no doubt that Jesus was an extraordinary teacher. He was famous around the world for being an extraordinary teacher. And everything that he said is worth paying attention to, I would claim, regardless of your religious beliefs and commitments. So let's pay attention to it and let's look at Luke 16, which is where this parable is found. So you have a Bible, you can flip there or you can flip there on your phone, it's on a screen as well. And I'll read this through and then we'll break it down little by little. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So we called him in and he asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer manager said to himself, what am I going to do? My master has taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he said. manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. Told him, take your bill, make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. So we have three different characters in this story. We have a rich boss man, we have a manager, and there's the debtors. The rich man is most likely uh, a large, uh, owner of a large um, plot of land, many plots of land actually, and the manager is the one who is in charge of that land to manage it, to, to oversee it, to negotiate contracts, all of that. And the debtors are most likely the farmers then who are leasing that land and they make their payment in the form of produce. The three characters and the problem emerges right away. There's this accusation. The manager is sloppy, he's selfish. He's not managing this property Well, And whether or not that's actually true, because of that rumor, the boss says, all right, turn it all over. Show me your accounts. Show me everything you've been doing. And if this is true, obviously, you're going to have to step down. Actually, if the accounts showed mismanagement, he wouldn't just have to step down. He would be put in jail. He would lose his reputation. He wouldn't be able to find another job ever again because of that. So this is serious. And before going any further and looking at this turning point, it's really important, I think, to stop and ask some personal questions. Because Jesus, every time Jesus told a story, it wasn't just for information. I mean, he, he wanted people to connect with that story personally, to put themselves in it, and to make sure that they are responding in a personal way. So I think we can ask ourselves this. Would I be at ease, or, or proud even, to let someone look over all of my accounts. All my bank account, my credit card statements, just lay it out there. So if, if Liz put up your bank account on the screens, how would you feel? Besides being totally inappropriate, of course. I mean, how would you feel to have all your financial spending, your financial history all up there on the screens? Do you think that it would be obvious to people that you're using your money wisely? Do you think that people would see that and think, wow, your faith really makes a difference. Your, your values here really make a difference in your financial habits. Makes you uncomfortable, doesn't it? <laughs> I think that when we know there's a money-related conversation coming, we tend to take the long way home. And... That's what, that's what I imagine is going on here with, with the manager. That he's been told to turn over his accounts to his boss. And he's taking the long way home. He's like, oh, no. <laughs> I'm stuffed. You know, things were going really well. No one knew how I was making all this money. All of a sudden, I've got to turn all this over. I mean, what's going to happen? And what's fascinating to me is he's taking this long way home and he's thinking about this. He's not actually wallowing in self-pity. Like, my life is ruined. What am I going to do? He, he goes from, what am I going to do? To, I've got I've to have a plan. Right? I've got to secure my future. This is, this is critical. And so he comes up with this brilliant and, and risky idea. And it's the turning point of the parable. He goes to all the debtors. And he says, what do you owe? Slash it. You owe 1,000 bushels? Make it 800. Right? And he goes through to all these debtors. Probably more than the two that are mentioned here and cuts down all their debts, and collects them. Here's what I think he's thinking. These people aren't currently paying their debts, right? They're not turning in the produce like they're supposed to do as farmers, which is making making me look bad. That's what the manager's thinking. So what if I take out my usual commission that I take, so my commission of oil, my commission of barley, all that, which is how business was done back then, and I collect all the debts without my commission and turn them in immediately to my boss? So best case scenario if I, if I do that, the farmers are going to love me for doing that because suddenly their, their debts were slashed. The boss is going to like me as well because that's stuff he wasn't getting and now he's getting it. And so best case scenario, all these people will be happy and I'll get my job back. Worst case scenario, my boss is still going to give me the boot because I've, I've not managed this well. But I, I have it in well with these farmers now. They owe me. And so instead of getting fired and having to do manual labor or getting fired and having to, to beg in the streets, I'm going to have a job. because I can go to one of these farmers and get a job. So it's win win. It's a brilliant plan. And the manager thought, or the, the boss thought so as well, because he gets back to his boss's villa with all these collected debts, and the boss commends him for his shrewdness. So the parable ends. And we're kind of left in the dark about what happened. Did he get his job back? Did he get fired? We don't really know because it's technically irrelevant to the point Jesus is trying to make, which is this. Wait for it. Be like this guy. <laughs> That's why people ignore this parable. Really? <laughs> Be like a, a guy who's mismanaged money and then does this behind-the-scenes deal to to save his his back. I mean, this is weird. So... We're going to look at Jesus' summary statements to see if we can make sense of this and to get it straight. start with the first one, the second half of verse 8. Jesus says, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I think Jesus is making two points here and one is maybe more obvious than the other. Because the first point is that many people, whether or not they love God, are pretty shrewd and creative when it comes to Figuring out things for their own financial self-interest. There's a story that Anne Lamont tells in her novel, Joe Jones. It's a story of this teenage boy and, and one of his best friends who are kidding around with the teenage boy's younger brother. And so the older brother says, watch this. <laughs> he doesn't know anything about money. And, and he does this every time. Uh, hey, Alfie, come over here a minute. And the older brother's got a dime and a, and a nickel on his hand. He goes, Alfie... You know, choose which one is best. You can have it, and the little brother takes the nickel because it's bigger. And the best friend's feeling really bad about this. Like, you're cheating your brothers. So he goes to Alfie and says, "Look, Alfie, you're being cheated. Actually, I know the nickel's bigger, but the dime is worth more." And Alfie goes, "I know, but if I take the dime, the game's over." Now that's shrewdness. That's financial shrewdness. In a situation where supposedly he's being cheated, he's getting the better deal. Jesus is implying in this parable, I think, it's a good thing to be shrewd financially. It's good to excel in business, to be skillful in financial planning, to know how to secure your best interests financially. That's worldly wisdom, and it's good. But the critical question underneath it that Jesus is asking is are you equally wise and creative in figuring out life for your best spiritual interests? You might be good at that financially, but what about spiritually? Are you being as shrewd and creative as you can, not just to maximize your financial benefits, but to maximize your spiritual ones, to, to serve people, to, to invest in the kingdom of God? Because the fact of the matter is, we're usually willing to be shrewd and creative in the areas of life that we really care about. So if we care about finances, we're going to do what it takes to be shrewd and creative and figure out how to, how to make things line up financially. And the people Jesus was talking to, supposedly for them, the most important thing in life was to love God and to love other people. So his question is, if you're shrewd about increasing your standard of living, how much more shrewd should you be about increasing your standard of giving. How much more shrewd should you be in, in loving people through your generosity, through your finances? And then Jesus is going to give an example of what that looks like in verse 9. I tell you, he says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Again, another odd phrase. What? Is Jesus saying we should use our money to make friends? Yes, he is. That's what he's saying. Let's not avoid it. But the, the question is, what kind of friends, right? Or how are we supposed to use money to make these friends? So when Jesus tells stories, he's sometimes making comparisons or similarities between the story and real life, and other times he's showing dissimilarities or making contrasts between the story and real life. And both things are going on in this parable, which is why I think sometimes we get confused. Because he's saying on the one hand, be like this shrewd and creative manager in the way that you use your money. Use your money to make friends, but by contrast, don't just make friends that are going to give you some kind of temporary monetary benefit. You should be making the kind of friends that give you a a long-lasting, holistic kind of of benefit. And don't be generous to people so that they'll owe you, like the shrewd manager does. No, be generous to people regardless of what return you're going to get. And this is what connects directly to the parable from last week that Mark taught on from Luke 14, the rationale of which was, faith working itself out in generosity doesn't expect a return. At least not a monetary one or returns as we usually think of returns. In fact, the return of faith working itself out in generosity is a lot bigger than maybe we normally imagine because it's about the joy of seeing people flourish that have experienced your generosity. It's about the beauty of being surrounded by people who have experienced your generosity and the joy of, and the satisfaction of that experience of being spent for them. So the return, in other words, is this eternal joy and friendship that begins right now. The upshot being, if you want to be financially shrewd and creative like the manager, do so in a way that really matters and that lasts. So use your money to be radically generous. Use all of your shrewdness and all of the creativity you can muster for that end and to get those kind of returns. And then Jesus goes on to make some additional points here in verses 10 to 12. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth who will trust you with true riches? If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who's going to give you property of your own? In other words, how we use our money is a litmus test. Since all of our money and our wealth ultimately belongs to God, comes from God, how we use our money is an indication of how we're going to use any other gifts that God might give us or has given us. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not teaching moralism. He's not saying, be generous with your money, and then God is going to give you spiritual riches that will last forever. Now, the point is, God has already made the richness of his life and his character and his generosity available to you in Jesus But if you're not demonstrating that with your finances, who's to say you'll live that out in any other area of life? So look at how you use your money to see what the gospel is doing in your life, how God is transforming you. So instead of thinking that the way we use our money isn't a big deal or or isn't spiritual, Jesus is saying this is a huge deal. The way you use your money is a huge deal. And he says to drive it home in verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and you'll love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money because either money or God will dominate your life. Either you will orient your life toward financial self-interest as the most important thing or you will orient your life toward your spiritual self-interest as the most important thing. Selwyn Hughes, a well-known Welsh pastor, has some reflections on this teaching, and I think says something very profound. He says, you can't serve God and money, but you can serve God with money. And the how of that is told by Jesus in this parable. How? By being shrewd and creative with the money God has given you, not just to advance your your own financial standing, but to invest generously, generously, in the lives of other people, to invest generously in God's mission to make all things new through the local church, carried out by his people. That's what we're called to. Now, each week in this series, we've been trying to get this very practical by looking at what offer this parable is giving us. Offer is a word that comes from improv theater. So anything an actor does or says on stage is an offer that then needs to be responded to by somebody else. So, for example... I could say, Sloan, would you believe we are building a rooftop garden here at Warehouse? Good. So she could block that offer by saying, no, we're not, which is technically true. Okay. We're not building, I wish, <laughs> we're not building a rooftop garden at Warehouse. But no, as a response, it's, it's a block that means the story doesn't go anywhere, right? It's not developing. It's not interesting. Uh, you've just killed my offer. Sorry. But you could accept the offer as well. I won't make you, I won't put you on the spot. You could say something like, uh, yeah, oh, rooftop garden, that's pretty cool. Okay, and so it doesn't develop the story either. Just saying yes, maybe just to please me, maybe because you're embarrassed, you want me to stop talking. Uh, Accepting the offer isn't the best response either. It's not courageous, it doesn't show trust, it's not creative. So the best response in improv is what's called over-accepting an offer. It's this principle of saying yes and and developing the story. So you could say yes and isn't it cool it's going to be big enough to hold a wedding because my friend is getting married and they they need somewhere to have a reception. Which is interesting and it keeps the story going uh, and it's definitely courageous. It takes the trust of saying I'll be in this story too. I'll make this story mine and I'm going to keep this going and I think every time, well, first of all, life is like improv, a lot like improv. Anything people say or do is, is an offer to us. But in relation to this talk, I think the parable is an offer. It's making us an offer about what life could be like, an offer of, of how we can respond. And we have those three options. We can block the offer, we can accept it, or we can overaccept it. So you could hear, and this offer could be phrased in, in lots of different ways. Um, I'm going to phrase it this way. Whatever your current circumstances, you can be creatively generous with your money. You can easily block that off or say, no, I, I don't have enough money to be generous. And no, I've got way too many debts. No, I'm doing okay, but man, he, he could sure be more generous. Right? So you can block by deflecting it as well and putting it in someone, else, someone else's camp. Now, you, you might feel that way and you might have debt, but... Jesus is saying there is opportunity to be generous that you don't even realize. And there is opportunity to deal with those huge obstacles in front of you. Um, and that's what this community is for. That's what God's work in your life is for. And it's your prerogative if you still want to block the offer. But consider these other options. So the other option, to accept the offer, but accept it for the wrong reasons. So to say, yes, I'm going to start being more creatively generous with my money, and then God is going to accept me. Then God is going to love me more deeply. Or, or yes, I'm going to start being more creatively generous with my money, and people will then know I'm, I'm a really good person. I'm doing pretty well. Uh, this is the religious response. It's, it's not, it's not a, a, a gospel-rooted, a grace-saturated, a God-centered response because it's coming from this position of, Yes, because I know that I can earn something more from God. Yes, because I want to look good in front of other people. Instead of, yes, because I know how generous God has been to me. Of living out of God's prior approval. Living out of God's definitive love for you and Jesus. It totally changes how you're saying yes. So what it looks like to over accept the offer then. Well, that's for you to decide what does it mean for you to say yes and to this offer of God has given you everything you need? You can be creatively generous with your money. It's something you're going to have to wrestle with on your own and to see if you, wanna, if you want to respond that way. And you know, it could look like a lot of things, but it starts with, yes, I understand, I get, I've encountered God's generosity for me in Christ. And I'm going to get more creative with my budget so I can give more. Or... Yes, and I'm going to commit to increasing my standard of giving 1% every year. I have a friend who did that. That's creative. That's bold. It's courageous. Yes, and I'm going to figure out how to support this family member in need or this friend in need, even though I don't know where it's going to come from. Um, Yes, and I'm going to take every opportunity, every opportunity I have to increase my standard of living. I'm going, going to get creative about how I can increase my standard of giving. Right, so this, this is how it works. Just yes and. How can I build on the story of God's generosity in life, in my life? It not, it's not yes and I want to earn more of God's love for me. It's yes and I want to celebrate how God has been generous in my life. I want to experience more of that satisfaction, that fullness of life that comes from being spent on behalf of others. It comes from entering into this drama of God's generosity. So that's the offer. I encourage you to sit with it, to pray about it, to reflect on it, to act on it. And so let's pray together. Father, thank you, first of all, for over-accepting us in your Son, Jesus. Thank you that even when Maybe even now when we're convicted about our accounts, when we're convicted about a lack of generosity, even then we can rest in your generosity to us. It's not conditional on this feeling. Thank you for your grace. And I ask that you give us courage by your spirit to, to over-accept over this offer to be generous in all of the creativity we can muster. So give us wisdom. Uh, guide us. Give us improvisational skills. We seek to respond to the life that you're offering us and help, help our lives to be even a dim reflection of the kind of generosity that you've shown us, the way that you've spent yourself for us so that we can have life. So fill us with joy as we respond by singing. Fill us with joy as we give our, our tithes and offerings. And fill us with joy as today and the days to come we take part in this drama of generosity that you've invited us into. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A benediction that's from 2 Corinthians 8, one of Paul's letters to the church in Corinth. And we focused on this the first week in the series, but in a lot of ways I think it's, it's the motto for this series spent because it connects it to the gospel and then shows us how we should live. We receive this benediction. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich, and you are therefore free to excel in the grace of giving. Amen. Go in grace.